Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Brett Scher. Dr. Scher is a board-certified cardiologist practicing in San Diego, California. He has also done additional training and certifications in personal training, fitness nutrition, behavioral modification, and functional medicine. Dr. Scher, thanks so much for coming on to the show today. My pleasure, Gary. Thanks for having me on. So I wanted to get you on because you're a practicing cardiologist, so you're the heart guy that everyone would have to go to if they're concerned about their heart, and you're also an advocate for the low-carb, high-fat diet. So I thought you would be the perfect person to speak to for anyone who is on a low-carb or even on more of a keto diet and they're, they're concerned about heart health. Um, yeah, you, I think I'll be able to ask some great questions for those listeners today for, um, to ask you. Yeah, I'm happy to help. And that's that's the field that I that I love to be involved in right now and help people as much as I can. So I'm happy to be here to talk about it. So to begin with, I, I think listeners would like to know, what is your story and how your journey into the low-carb, high-fat world um, as a cardiologist? What got your interest there? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And it really goes all the way back to my fellowship. When I, when I did my cardiology fellowship, it was a combined preventative, integrative, and general cardiology fellowship. So I was always interested in more of the prevention side of things. And um, of course, prevention at that time was all about the the low-fat diet um, and the Ornish programs. And and so that's what I learned and that's what I was taught. And then you get out into the real world and you start trying to implement this on everybody. And you've got this kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I'm going to change the world, I'm going to save so many people. And then you see the reality is far from from what your dream was and far from what you thought it could be. And it takes time to figure out why that is. And it's a sad statement, but frequently in the medical profession, we kind of put it on the patient. Oh, the patient's just not compliant. The patient isn't doing what they need to be doing. Well, it took a little time, but I finally realized, well, maybe it's my job to help figure out what the patient can do better, to find something that's better for them to stick with and, and help their life. And at the same time, I started working with a good friend of mine who was already kind of well-versed and well-trained in the keto diet and using that with his clients. He was a health coach and a trainer. And it was a sort of a perfect storm that I wanted to get more involved with the prevention. I wanted to find something that worked better for my patients because I saw what I was doing wasn't working. And I started working with my friend Dustin and all of that together just had sort of this aha moment that, oh, maybe this is the way. And then I I dove a little bit deeper into the keto science and the low carb science and started having some, some success with it, you know, one patient at a time and then realized, yep, this is what I've been looking for. This is, this is where it is because people are much more compliant with it. They enjoy their life so much better when they're on this type of a lifestyle as opposed to the, the low fat, low calorie, chronic, sort of starvation type of uh, restriction. And I was seeing so, much, so many health benefits. And, and that comes with a little bit of a definition issue too, because the way we're trained as doctors is that fat is bad, period, right? So when you, but when you see all these health benefits coming from in, eating more fat and less carbs, all of a sudden you, you realize that, 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 dogma is just so incorrect. And, you know, it helps to have people like Gary Tobbs and Nina Teicholz and all these people 
really showing um, the fault in the science. So all of it was just a perfect timing for me. It all came together. And that's what helped me on my journey to get me to this point. Yeah, and I, I think what people can hear there too is that in cardiology, there's two components. As you said, there's the preventative component where you're trying to prevent cardiovascular disease and the advice that you give there. And then there's when the patient actually has cardiovascular disease and what you do to, to manage that. So you're, you've got like two thinking caps on when you're, when you're trying to do things. It sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's, and then there's three thinking caps because then there's even the hospital work. So no question, if you are in the middle of having a heart attack or if you're having, you know, horrible congestive heart failure or bad arrhythmias, you want the latest, the advanced cardiology techniques and the procedures. No question about that. But when it comes to prevention and even for primary prevention or secondary prevention, so people have already had heart attacks trying to prevent another one. That's where cardiology really falls short because it's still a very drug and mechanistic, or sorry, not mechanistic, but drug and procedural focused specialty. And that doesn't work for prevention. That's where we really have to talk about lifestyle. And, uh, you know, primary prevention is one thing. Secondary prevention is another thing, but they're still talking about prevention. You, you want to prevent this from happening again. And that comes down to behavior modification for the patient finding something that works for them that's going to fit into their life and is going to help them improve their health. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's nice for people to hear if they are on a low-carb diet or a keto diet that they are actually on a preventative um, diet already. It's something that you are using to help prevent cardiovascular disease. So it's not that they're doing more, more harm to themselves if they're trying to adopt that new lifestyle. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that comes down to this fear of fat, right? The yeah. fear of saturated fat in particular, that if we're eating that, it doesn't matter what else we're doing, we're killing ourselves. And that's, you know, there are going to be plenty of doctors who are promoting that message because that's when we've been taught for decades, you know, going all the way back to the seven country studies with Ansel Keys. That's where this all started. And I, I really direct people to to look into Zoe Harcum's work and Nina Teichelt's work because they do such a great job of debunking that myth. And it's it's a little sad that it, it has to come from outside the medical community because those in the medical community have their blinders on. They they can't be the ones to debunk that myth because so much is dependent on that myth because it's been taught as the right thing to do for health for decades and decades and decades. And it's it's difficult to say we were wrong and it's, it's, it's not true. And so that's why it's great that we've had these outside influences showing us the data, holding it up to our face and saying, look, this is really not true. So once you can get past that initial hurdle, that initial fear of, of fat being harmful, then you can start to see all these amazing benefits that come from a low-carb lifestyle. And from a cardiologist, I love to see people losing weight. I love to see people improving their glucose and their insulin control. I love to see people reducing their inflammation. I love to see people getting out and feeling better and moving their bodies more. Those are the things that prevent heart attacks. Those are the things that improve your cardiovascular risk profile. We've been focusing so much on cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol that people forget about diabetes and blood sugar and insulin and inflammation. I mean, it's, it's really easy to forget about that because cholesterol has a pill you can take that makes your numbers look better. And, you know, for convenience sake, for monetary sake, for um, outside influence sake, that's the way that medicine has gone. 
but we really need to widen our scope of, of our practice and, and widen our view to see all these other things that impact heart disease more so than just a simple LDL level. Um, and that's and that's what we see improve on on the low carb lifestyle. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about some lifestyle tips um, further in the interview. But already there, I think what's nice for people to hear is that magical number that comes when they get a, a cholesterol test. So they get the total. Usually, most patients will get a total cholesterol number, and then they also get their LDL potentially. And you know, their primary care doctor or their GP might start freaking out if their total cholesterol is a bit higher than the guidelines, or and then especially the the LDL if it's just tracking up a little bit, and that and that I think starts put creating the fear factor that patients think oh no it's a little bit above normal and my you know i think i'm already starting to lay down plaque and <laughs> that's not the case that uh, you you need if your number is just a little bit higher that immediately you're causing yourself harm so it's nice again for i think people to hear that from you that no don't worry don't freak out yeah yeah not only are you not immediately causing yourself harm but it's not even clear that you're causing yourself harm over the long term either so the easy question is if your ldl spikes your total cholesterol spikes but everything else is improving and you're feeling better the easy the easy answer is don't panic right because it's not an acute problem take your time we can figure this out and a lot of studies show that initial spikes come down over the course of a year uh you know there's good evidence to show that so you know, stick with it and maybe it's going to come down and it'll be a non-issue. And then even if it remains elevated, it's still one piece of the puzzle. And that's the key. It's not the whole puzzle. It's one piece of it. And if, you know, 95% of everything else improves, then you have to put it all into context. And maybe that's still the right thing for you. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. And it's not an absolute. And that's what I want people to really walk away with is that, look, first of all, cholesterol doesn't worsen or increase in in the majority of people. So the first thing is just to try it. And it's a measurable factor that you can get a blood test and see how yours changes. And then if it does, to take a breath before you panic. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great advice for people. And as you said, um, there's so many other factors involved. But I know what's the, what happens for the majority of people is they don't get to see a cardiologist like you who can talk them through the process. They'll just have a 10, 15 minute appointment with their primary care doctor. They do that blood test. It comes back, goes, Oh, it's high. No, you're above guidelines. I think you sh you need to take a statin. And then suddenly they're on chronic medication and the patient hasn't been educated to say, don't, don't worry. It's okay. Right. Right. That's a great point. And that's, and, and that's sort of a sad part about the medical community right now is that the the low carb high fat lifestyle and how blood tests respond to that is outside of most people's wheelhouse so to speak or their their normal practice knowledge and so they are going to be taken off guard and not realize that this is a little bit of a different scenario right because if you have a high LDL that's going up in the setting of chronic inflammation and in the setting of High insulin levels and uh, pre-diabetes. Now, that's that's a concern. That's something to be definitely wary of with low HDL and high triglycerides. Absolutely, you need to take note of that. But that same LDL in someone with a high HDL, a low triglycerides, low inflammation, perfect insulin and glucose numbers, is that the same concern? Now, if you're not familiar with the low carb lifestyle, you haven't looked into this, you're not going to see the difference. You're not going to differentiate it as a doctor. You say LDL equals X. Okay. That means we 
decrease the fat in your diet and put you on a statin. But they're two completely different scenarios in completely different contexts. So, so I guess my advice to patients would be that you need to point that out to your doctor because your doctor's not looking at this whole picture and say, well, look, doc, I understand my LDL went up, but look, did you see my HDL went up? My triglycerides went down. My glucose is under perfect control. My waist is four inches smaller. I mean, don't those all sort of factor into this as well and kind of open their eyes to it. And, and I like to say the patient needs to be the teacher. The patient needs to teach the doctor about these things. And, you know, one of my goals is to try and get as much information as I can out to the patients and to doctors to empower both of them to sort of understand this process a little bit more that it's not so black and white and it's not all about the LDL number, but it's the LDL in context to everything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, at, as you said, there, things aren't black and white. And I think patients, it's nice for them to hear that too. You live, you know, you as a um, as a cardiologist, you have to also live in the gray. There's lots of stuff that uh, hasn't been fully studied or is still cutting edge. So you've just got to go with um, with good clinical thinking and other tests, and you and just go with that direction too. Because um, I think a lot of patients will think, "Oh, but it surely is black and white." And if it's that, then that's the only choice that I have. But um, as you said, no, you know, put it into context. If you're metabolically looking healthy in all these other aspects, then hey, no, maybe it's not a bad thing. Right, right. And you know, just to, to touch on something you said there, there are some things that haven't been studied. Is I think were the exact words you used, and that's so true. Because even when you look at statins, you know, if your LDL's up, your doctor is going to put you on a statin. Every single statin trial was done on people following a low carb, I'm sorry, a low fat diet or a standard American diet. There is zero evidence of statins in people following a low carb, high fat diet. Now, is there reason to think that maybe they wouldn't have the same benefit? Absolutely there is because the, the trials show that statins have the biggest benefit in people with elevated markers of inflammation because statins have a natural anti-inflammatory component. So if you're on a low-carb diet and you have naturally lowered your inflammation, statins are likely going to have much less benefit. High HDL, low triglyceride, there's reason to believe that statins also might have less benefit because lowering the LDL is less important in that setting. So everybody who follows a low-carb keto diet they are outside the guidelines by definition because there have been no studies looking at their lifestyle and the dangers of LDL or the dangers, or, or sorry, or the small benefits of statins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering, with the keto diet having sort of gained a lot of popularity in the US, are you getting more patients who are coming in just for consultation because they notice a change in their blood work because uh, they try, they, they've adopted the keto lifestyle to most of the time lose weight. But now suddenly they get, again, freaked out going, oh, no, my blood blood's, um, work's gone up and uh, I just need a consult. Is, are you seeing more of that that you're having to consult people for? Yeah, absolutely. I am. I'm, I'm seeing some in my, in my practice, uh, my general cardiology practice, and even more on, on my online my online practice where I do for a second opinion consulting, because that's where people from all over the country, uh, when they get their blood work and their doctor is kind of pushing them to get off their diet or start a statin, they need another resource to come to. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely, I'm getting a number of those people. And those are exactly the people I want to see and I want to help. Because again, it's not cut and dry. It's not that I can just say, oh, forget about it. It's not a problem. I mean, it's a real discussion you have to have with them. 
And yet I have to look at the whole picture frequently. A lot of the tests haven't been done or the doctor hasn't looked at the whole picture, but that's, that's the discussion that needs to be had rather than just knee jerk. You have to come off it. And, and it's so nice to be able to help people in this way because people come to me and they say, and they're like desperate. They're like, doc, I feel so much better. I've lost 30 pounds and it was the easiest 30 pounds I've ever lost. And I've tried so many different things. And this is the one thing that works for me. And now my doctor's telling me I have to stop. What can I do? And if we can sit down and go through their whole picture and I can be convinced for myself and for them that it's not a danger, they are so thankful and so grateful. And that's, I mean, that's the impact I want to have. And that's how I want to help people. Yeah. So I know you've, um, because you've got a podcast too, and you've had a chance to speak to Dave Feldman, um, because his whole thinking now with with lipids and and cholesterol especially people who what he's calling hyper responders i'd love to just know what what are your thoughts then on people who do get these really high numbers when they go on a on a keto diet are, are you also comfortable to with those with those kind of numbers that the people yeah. are getting so so first of all just to you know to talk about dave feldman he is amazing he has done more for understanding cholesterol in in the past i don't know 10 months than, than most science has done in the past 10 years, I think, because he's really showing us a, a different version of it that we've never seen before. And um, one, of my, one of my best stories of my podcast was after my second interview with Dave Feldman, you know, I finished and I go downstairs and my wife says, how was the podcast? And I said, it was great. It was fantastic. I said, I have no idea if anybody's going to listen to it because we talked about so many like arcane details, but I had the best time. I mean, I I, I welcome any opportunity to speak to that guy. He is amazing. But now to talk about the these hyper responders. So, you know, it no matter how much I hear about it and read about it and learn about it, I'm never going to get rid of that little gut reaction that sees a number that high and says, oh, this could be a problem. I Just because it's been ingrained in my brain for so long. So I'm never going to get over that reaction. But at least now I can stop. I can have that reaction and I can say, okay, let's think about this from a reasonable standpoint. Because why would the LDL go up so high? I mean, that's the question we've never asked. As as doctors, we've never asked, why would it go up so high? What is the reason for it? And because there has to be some mechanism. And that's what these engineers like Dave Feldman have, have helped us see things from this mechanistic standpoint. And his explanation, although it's not you know, proven and 100% clear, but his explanation makes just so much sense that you need to transport fat for fuel when you are fat adapted and on a low carb ketogenic diet. Well, what happens when you're using fat for fuel? You need more triglycerides. Okay. When you have more triglycerides, you have more VLDLs because they are the transport molecules for the triglycerides. Well, the natural lifespan of a VLDL is it eventually turns into an LDL. So it makes complete sense that you and some people are going to have this spike in LDLs because of your sort of downstream need or upstream need for triglycerides as fuel. So once you have a mechanism behind it, all of a sudden you can say, all right, so maybe it's not so dangerous. And it's not LDL in your blood vessels that causes, sorry, in your blood that causes a problem. It's LDL inside the walls of your blood vessels that causes a problem. So does one necessarily equal the other? Well, not necessarily. So I guess it, it, I'm not giving you a 100% clear answer to say, nah, I'm not worried about it at all because I can't. I can't say that. Mm. 
But I can certainly say if you asked me this three years ago, I would have freaked out and said, absolutely not. You cannot live this way. But now I'm saying, you know what? There's a good ex- potential explanation for this. There, There is a physiological reason for this. And there's reason to believe that maybe it's not as dangerous as as it otherwise would seem. So it, it puts us in a, in a difficult spot as doctors to know what to do. And my, my initial response is always, don't panic. Let's just see what happens over time. Let's look at the whole picture. And I'm following some people with LDLs of 250, 260, which I never would have done before. And I'm following them without medications and without changing their lifestyle because everything else is looking better. Now, that being said, I have had a couple people where their LDLs go up to 250, 260, and their HDL goes down, and their triglycerides go up. And that is a, that's a scary picture for me. That's something that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed fairly quickly because um, mm-hmm. I don't like to see that pattern. But if everything else fits, everything else fits with the pattern that Dave Feldman's showing, I think it's okay to take a breath and take a beat and just kind of survey the whole picture and not worry about it right away. And again, the the reason I asked you that is because, you know, when people will start the keto diet and they do have that response, uh, yeah, they might freak out, they jump online, they search things, they find Dave's explanation and, and then they start wondering, I don't know, should I trust this guy? Shouldn't I trust this guy? Right. And it's exa- And then again, it's nice, I think, for them to hear even you who, as a cardiologist who understands all the mechanisms and the, the terminology and how everything works, you also initially get that, Ooh, oh dear, but then, yeah. <laughs> but then it's that, okay, it's okay, relax, don't panic. And yeah, it should be fine, but maybe there's a small percentage where maybe it's not fine. But as long as we've done a workup, we can, we can see if you, which category you fall in. So. Right. So it's clear you don't just brush it off and ignore it and say it's no problem. And at the same time, you don't panic and, and undo your entire lifestyle and start drugs. It's clearly somewhere in the middle and you need to figure out what's the right, what's the right process for you. And I mean, at the moment, I guess in the world of cardiology, is everything about the LDL molecule? It's like, you know, I guess most people think, oh, it's just about this one thing this ldl thing and it's it that's the only thing i need to worry about when it comes to heart health as long as that's down then everything's fine but um if it goes up then it's going to cause a problem and i've always felt the way that maybe people should think about ldl and if it was such a deadly substance is kind of like a dose response um so if if it was a poison it, it like a poison if the more of it you take you're going to get a result. You're going to get a negative result. You can't take more and then get better. But LDR doesn't do that. It's so random. It could be high, could be low. Um, so there's like a over-focus on this one molecule sometimes, I think, to, as a as the primary marker of health, heart health. Am I in the right direction there? Oh, Gary, you're absolutely right. You hit it on the head. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more with that statement. Um, you know, when I'm in the hospital, seeing people who come in with heart attacks, it is not uncommon at all to see LDLs of 80, 90, 100 when people coming in with heart attacks. And, you know, you look at the studies, actually, there are good studies that show the average LDL of people with heart attacks. It's a nice, nice, um, uh, what's it called? Bayesian plot with the, with the average somewhere between like 70 and 120. That's the majority of LDL for people who come in with heart attacks. And then you look at things like smoking. One of the worst things you can do for your heart health, it does nothing to raise your LDL. Diabetes and insulin resistance does not raise your LDL. 
inflammation does not raise your LDL level. Yet, these are some of the biggest risk factors for heart attacks and cardiovascular disease that I just listed. They don't raise your LDL. So it's when you look at it that way, it's painfully obvious that it's not all about the LDL because all of these risk factors are going to greatly increase your cardiovascular risk without increasing your LDL. So we focus far too much on that. I mean, you can see people with the with the big bellies, the central adiposity, the clear insulin resistance, and they go to see their doctor. And the number one thing their doctor talks about is going to be the LDL. But that's not going to be that person's biggest risk factor. And I think we really need to get out of that way of thinking um, for the health of our patients and for the betterment of our patients. Because it's, look, it, it's, it's got a fascinating history. I mean, when you look at the history of LDL and how it was discovered and, um, the, how they discovered the receptors and its cell-mediated endocytosis for the first time. And then you found cholesterol plaques and, and LDL plaques in vessel walls. And, and then you find a drug that can lower it, but also does a lot of other things, which can then lower the risk a little bit. And you know that process on the surface is pretty interesting and says, okay, maybe there's something to this LDL thing. But it's it's taken on a life of itself. I mean, it's been a snowball just running downhill with nobody getting in its way, and it's just gathering more and more momentum. And hopefully now we can start to get in the way of that snowball and say, hang on a second. We've overemphasized this for too long. doesn't mean we can eliminate it. doesn't mean we can completely close our eyes to it. But we have to put it into context and not overemphasize it so much. Mm. And again, that comes back to the majority of people who aren't going to get a thorough cardiovascular workup there is just that quick appointment maybe an annual blood test with their with their local doctor and it seems like the the over focus is just oh what's your total cholesterol what's your ldl if that's within guidelines you're heart healthy and it's like no that's not <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's not you haven't got insurance policy that way so i think what would be great to hear now for someone who is in the situation where they want to know how can i sort of see am i heart healthy what's the kind of workup you would recommend or you like to do then to see if someone's heart is is working well yeah great question well the first thing is is how are you living your life i mean there's there's so much about just how you eat how you move your body how you sleep how you manage your stress those are some of the most important factors irregardless of any blood tests just how are you living your life is so important for heart health. And there's plenty of evidence to support that. Um, so that's what I start with. You know, people want to sit down and know their numbers right away, mm. but hang on a second. Let's not jump to the numbers yet. Let's, let's look at the whole picture and look about how you're living your life and focus on that first. Then the second step is, well, look at other metrics. Like weight is not always the best metric, but, um, your central adiposity, how much, you know, belly fat you have basically. Um, and your blood pressure, those are obviously very important markers of, of health and, and then get into some of the blood work, which has to include a full metabolic profile, including your blood sugar, your hemoglobin A1C, and preferably an insulin level, which is sort of new on the scene, which is a shame that it's, that it's new, but, um, makes complete sense why we should be measuring insulin as well. Because by the time your blood sugar is an issue, your insulin has been out of control for, years, if not a decade or more, trying to control that blood sugar. So by checking the insulin, you're you're seeing things in a much earlier stage. So blood sugar, insulin, full metabolic profile. 
of course, cholesterol. Of course, we want to check cholesterol, but not just the LDL, the HDL, the triglycerides, and looking at those ratios because the ratios have been shown in studies to be better predictors of cardiovascular disease than the LDL alone. So the total cholesterol to HDL ratio, the triglyceride to HDL ratio, um, those are key. And then measures of inflammation, like the high sensitivity CRP is a great test, or fibrinogen is another good test for inflammation markers. Now, those have to be interpreted with a little bit of care because anything that increases your inflammation can increase those. So if you get those tested after real hard, high-intensity workout, it might be a little bit higher. If you've got a cold, it might be a little bit higher. So you've got to you've got to put those into context and be careful about interpreting those. But if you're in your sort of steady baseline state, they're great measures, uh, markers of of inflammation. Um, you know that's that's an obvious basic place to start. People ask me a lot about advanced lipid testing, looking at small dense LDL, looking at your um, uh, your NMR, which is a way of measuring sort of the different types of LDLs, the subtypes of them, um, and whether they're inflamed or not. And those can be very helpful tests. But what's fascinating is usually those results are predicted by your triglycerides and your HDL. If your HDL is high and your triglycerides are low, then those advanced lipid testing are usually going to all be in the zone you want them. And if it's reversed, your HDL is low, your triglycerides high, then your advanced lipid testing is usually going to be a bit of a mess. Not 100%, but it's usually pretty consistent. So I don't always recommend that people go out and get those tests, but if there's any sort of a question or discrepancy, then absolutely they can be helpful. And then one of the best tests you can get is, is a coronary calcium score. Because that's not measuring a surrogate such as a blood test. That's measuring what's actually going on in your arteries themselves. So it's a simple CAT scan. It takes about 10 seconds. It's relatively low radiation, what we call one millisievert, um, which is on the lower side of radiation dose. And it tells us if you have calcium in the walls of your artery. Now, not the middle of the artery causing blockages, but the walls of their artery. And basically, it, it puts you in a higher or lower risk pool for developing cardiovascular disease over the next 10 to 15 years. So a score of zero is, of course, what we want to see. That's a wonderful thing. Score above five, a uh, score above 400 is a definite concerning score and something that needs to be addressed. And then there's, there's, you know, a big middle ground, depending on your age, your gender, your ethnicity, and so forth, that, that is more of a gray zone in between there. But it's a, it really helps add one more piece of the puzzle to your risk factor profile. And I think what's great for people to listen to there again is that when it comes to heart health, it's not just about cholesterol. There's all these other metabolic elements that you are looking at there. As you said, insulin, glucose control, um, where you're laying down body fat and is it excessive? Right. Um, are you sleeping well? Yes or no? Um, yeah, your lifestyle factors. It's like all these other things are something you have to consider as, as a part of the heart healthy picture. And I like that you brought up the, the calcium scans because when I, started my experiment with a high vet diet in 2012 this is when i went down my cardiovascular rabbit hole and you know at that time i i had the same response that dave talks about like my cholesterol went way up my ldl went way up but my trigs dropped my hdl went out went up so it was like you know i was that i was that patient going i don't understand like it looks good but my ldl's gone up and I, you know i 
I'm using UK metrics here, which was, I think it was in the seven millimolar range is what, or was my total cholesterol numbers. I can't remember exactly what the LDL was, but you know, it's it's above guidelines for sure. Sure. And most people would freak out. So anyway, um, after doing all the research I could, the calcium coronary scan is something that I did. And then also CIMT, a carotid intimate media thickness Mm -hmm. test. And I just wanted, wanted to hear your thoughts also on those two, because from what I understand, if you are truly worried about cardiovascular health and are you going to die of a heart attack, those are probably the two best imaging studies you could do to actually see what's going on inside the pipes. Like, do you have disease? Right. Yes or no? Right. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, You know, personally, I prefer the coronary calcium scores over the CIMT. Um, there's a little bit more variability in the CIMT, but if that's what's available to you, it's certainly still a good place to start. Um. And again, the normal study is extremely reassuring. Um, the, the calcium score just has better data behind it to support its, its uh, risk or lack of risk over the next 10 to 15 years. So, so that's mainly why I, I, um, I prefer that. But there, each one is, is a great test to look at um, to help you better define your risk. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. So if you, get a, if you start a keto diet and your LDL goes up and you've been on the keto diet for six months and you get a calcium score and you've got calcium deposits, that calcium was probably there before you started your diet six months ago, right? So a lot of people will look at that and could say, oh, see, I told you this diet's going to kill you. Look, it's got calcium. But you have to be reasonable at that as well and say, well, hey, this has probably been there over the, you know, this generates slowly. It doesn't happen overnight. So um, some people have even suggested that you, you we should be getting a baseline on everybody exactly for that reason to say, you're going to start a keto diet, get your calcium score now, and then we'll get it again in five years and see what happens. And that's not unreasonable. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty reasonable suggestion. Um, certainly a fascinating research study that I would love to be involved in. If anybody is out there who's looking to fund a research project, uh, <laughs> I'd be happy to do that. Um, but yeah, it, it can be a very helpful tool and especially to sort of, give you peace of mind if your LDL is, you know, 250 or so forth, and you have a zero calcium score, say, okay, you know what? It's not going to kill you tomorrow. Let's recheck in a couple of years and see what happens. That's not unreasonable either for the right patient. Again, it, it definitely has to be individualized, but these are all options. And it's one more tool in our toolbox to help us figure out what's right for you. I think that was such a great point. I, I personally haven't even thought about that because thankfully mine came back as zero, but not thinking of people who have change their way of eating and they have the test and it comes back slightly abnormal and then as you said they might think oh i i started a high fat diet therefore it must have laid down plaque already within six months and it's like no it can't lay down plaque that fast in this case to that degree so yeah you got to put it in context as you said earlier it's, it's not like i can I, I would go out and eat something now, notice my LDL has gone up and immediately I'm laying down plaque. It's, that's right. not how things work. <laughs> right. It doesn't work that way. I mean, I guarantee you if, you know, I have so many patients who have been diabetic for 10 or 15 years and I get them on the low carb diet and their, their diabetes numbers improve. But if their LDL gets worse and they get a calcium score with calcium, being diabetic for 10 or 15 years, that's what caused your calcium, not the keto diet over the past three to six months. Uh, you know, So again, it's going to be different for everybody, but we have to have that perspective in mind when we get those tests. 
And then just as reassurance for people, if they do say like get a, get a baseline, as you mentioned, and they come back with an abnormal calcium scan, and now would a low-carb or keto diet still be an option for them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It wouldn't yeah. preclude somebody from having, from, from partaking in a low carb keto diet. You, you absolutely could, um, still do it. You know, you have to be followed just like you would otherwise, you, but you definitely should be followed and doing it under the, under the, uh, eyes of a watchful doctor, uh, just to make sure everything's in line because that puts you at a higher cardiovascular risk. But look, if you had calcium and said, and then came to see me and said, you wanted to go on a, high carb, low fat diet, eating, you know, lots of pasta and bread. And I would say that's probably riskier than going on the keto diet. You know, I'd want to watch you very carefully that way as well, if that's the way you're going to go. You know, calcium just says you are at a higher risk because of who you are, who your genetics are, the way you've been living your life. What happens from here on out, there's no one prescription, you know, based on your calcium. It's just you're at a higher risk factor or a higher risk profile, and we're going to have to follow you more closely. Uh, so are there any patients uh, so you've mentioned potentially that you would follow them more closely in this case i'm just thinking are there any patients that you might say not go shouldn't go on a low carb or keto diet have you come across that situation well what i've come across is people who have tried it and had some unusual reactions and it doesn't happen often but like I, i mentioned i have had some people where the ldl goes up the triglycerides go up and the HDL goes down. And that, it should not happen, but it but it has happened. And those people, I say, okay, we need to experiment with something else. Um, and a lot of the times, it's just adding a little more fiber, decreasing some of the saturated fats, changing it to monounsaturated fats, um, you know, and finding different ways to get their calories without them losing some of the benefits that they've had from the low-carb diet. Um mm. You know, other people who I would say shouldn't, there's some concern with people who have an APOE4 allele. So APOE is, um, it's one, you know, when you get your 23andMe or you get your genetic profile, um, your APOE profile is one of those. And APOE4 specifically, um, they can have a worse reaction, for lack of a better way of saying it, a worse reaction to saturated fats doesn't mean they automatically are going to, but if you have both alleles, so both copy of that gene are APOE4, so APOE4 slash 4, then maybe you'd be a little bit more hesitant to starting them on a high saturated fat diet right off the bat. But it's still perfectly reasonable to experiment with and see how they respond. Whereas if they're APOE2 or APOE3, a little bit of a different story. So that's not you know, proven in good science. That's something that is um, been talked about a lot and sort of anecdotally reported. You know, maybe somebody like that you'd be a little hesitant with. Um, some people with GI issues, different gut issues, um, uh, may not be able to handle as much fat. Um, but again, that's just something you can experiment with to see how they do. And a lot of people sort of improve with that over time. Previously, I would have said type 1 diabetics. Um, you know, about a year ago, if you asked me that question, I would have said I would never put a type 1 diabetic on, on a keto diet. But now I've just been seeing lots of evidence and talking to lots of people who have tremendous experience with putting type 1 diabetics on keto diets. Um, boy, you have to watch their insulin like a hawk, but they're the ones who are so used to watching their sugars and insulin on a regular basis that they're actually a great uh, population to put on a keto diet because they can, they know how to change things from day to day, minute to minute. Um, and that's what you have to do. 
you know, the, the people who are type two diabetics actually might be more of a concern than the type ones if they're not used to checking their blood sugar. Um, if they're not used to changing their insulin doses as much, because as you put them on the diet, their need for medications is going to drop rapidly. And the worst thing you can do is put them into a position where they are hypoglycemic and symptomatic and putting themselves in danger from that standpoint. So, so that has to be done carefully with the right patient who's going to be vigilant about their blood sugars and, and their insulin dosing and their medications. Um, but that's sort of a long-winded way of saying, no, I'd pretty much put anybody on it. There are just yeah. some caveats that make you sort of be a little more cautious. But uh, it's a long way of saying everybody could certainly try it. It doesn't mean everybody's going to love it. It doesn't mean everybody's going to thrive on it. But you know, there's no harm in trying it. It's an experiment just like anything else. And if it doesn't work, maybe we try you on a vegan diet for six months and see if you do better with that. I mean, there are everybody deserves to be their own end of one experiment and find out what works for them as an individual. And that's exactly what this whole podcast is about too, biohacking, N equals one physiology, just taking the information, testing it and see if it works for you or not. Yeah. And um, I mean, those points you brought up with the, the diabetic control too, I had James McCarter on and he was saying the exact same thing with Virtue. And at least in that case, that service actually monitors you. They have a a doctor who oversees and a health coach. So you've got that point of contact. But the reason I asked that is, is uh, about any sort of um, patient base that wouldn't have it is just so that, uh, yeah, there's always going to be outliers or there's going to be people who don't respond well. So I think it's nice if there are people listening and they thought, no, everyone's saying I should be on this diet, but it doesn't quite feel right for me. It's nice for them to think, to know, look, okay, you, it's okay. You can reevaluate the situation. So, um, right. with someone. Right. And, and you bring up Verta Health. I mean, they are a phenomenal program. And that's, that is sort of the best situation to do this for diabetics because you are so closely monitored. If you're a patient with diabetes and you see your doctor once a year and you decide, Hey, I'm going to try this keto diet. No, that's not the way to do it. I mean, Verta is the prime example. Now you, you know, you may not be able to get the level of monitoring that they get at Verta Health, but you need some heightened level of monitoring to, to go on this diet and be able to do it safely. Mm -hmm. And a common question that I see sometimes go up again when people's LDL goes up, they start asking themselves, "Do I have familial hypercholesteremia? Am I do not do I now qualify as as a person who's got this high cholesterol, very high cholesterol issue from a genetic point of view?" Which I think it sort of touches on what you were talking about earlier with that E, the the E four with the genetics there, does it? Uh -huh. And I. I, I don't think I've ever found a, a good answer, but how would you know if you are f if, if you do fall into that familial hypercholesteremia category? Is this like a certain number that qualifies you into that? Yeah, well, there's a whole diagnostic criteria, and this is where doctors, including cardiologists, really um, are also fairly superficial because there's this magic number of an LDL of 190. And if your LDL is above 190, some people are just going to label you as familial hypercholesterolemia, but that's not accurate. I mean, there's there's called the Simon Broom criteria where if you have to look at your family history and then you have to uh, both of um, hypercholesterolemia or premature coronary disease, you have to look at the physical exam and see if they have the, the classic um, nodules that you can get with familial hypercholesterolemia. There's, and then at what age have you been diagnosed with hypercholesterolemia and exactly how high is it? So there's this whole criteria and a point system to say, are you likely to have familial hypercholesterolemia or not? 
And then of course, there's also genetic tests. But, but here's the thing. If your LDL is, you know, 110, 120, 130, and you go on a keto diet and it goes up to 220, you don't have familial hypercholesterolemia because it was 110 before, just like six months ago. So how could you possibly have familial hypercholesterolemia? So that's where, that's where the argument usually breaks down because your, your LDL was fine. And so you have, you are one of these hyper responders. Now, why that is, again, is not proven. But there's this great theory about the energy demand hypothesis that that's why it went up. Um, but it's not because of familial hypercholesterolemia. Now, if you had LDLs of 190 your whole life um, and you have a family history of premature coronary disease and a family history of hyperlipidemia and you try the keto diet and your LDL goes up higher, okay, that could be a familial hypercholesterolemia type of scenario. But that's that is by far the the least common um, example that I see. It's usually the one who's had totally normal LDL their whole life and goes up on on the keto diet, and that's not familiar hypercholesterolemia. Yeah, so it's not as if there's a big percentage of people out there who fall into that category. It's a it's a smaller percentage, yeah, and then you, yeah, uh, yeah, I was gonna say interestingly, you know, studies show it's like one in five hundred people, which on, sounds a lot higher than it should be. Um, for the heterozygous to, uh, you know, one copy instead of two copies of, of the gene. It sounds a lot higher when you read it in, in, um, articles, cause that's certainly not one I see in my practice. But still, uh, I mean, if you have a pre-keto LDL that's perfectly normal, then chances are overwhelming that you don't have familial hypercholesterolemia. Yeah. And I remember coming across some people who have the condition. And I can remember one particular story of a guy who, this was back in the 1970s, and he lived in Zimbabwe. And he went for an insurance test. And the insurance company came back and said, oh, we're sorry, we think the lab's messed up. Because <laughs> the numbers, are, they don't seem right. And he, because his, his LDL was so high, and he's always total cholesterol number, and he fell into that. But when I met him, he was in his seventies, and you yeah. know, it was, it was it was just another case in point to think. Okay, so your cholesterol has been how high, and you're and you're in your seventies. So for seventy years, your body has had that level of cholesterol, and it's done no harm to you. You know, he he was getting continuously checked all the time by his cardiologist, and there was no yeah. signs of any disease. Well, that's what's so fascinating about familial hypercholesterolemia is there really is sort of two subsets of people. There is the subset that gets heart disease and heart attacks at a very young age, and it's and it's tragic. But the other subset of people with the same cholesterol numbers actually live longer, and they have decreased risk of cancer, decreased risk of infection, because there seems to be a protective element of that LDL. The key is how do you determine who's who? because Look, if, if, if I'm the one who's got the high LDL and is going to develop heart disease early, okay, I would take a statin. That's like the one time I would take a statin. Um, but if I'm not, why would I want to subject myself to that medication for decades and decades when I'm actually going to live longer thanks to my LDL? And it's, it's fascinating to try and determine which camp someone with familial hypercholesterolemia is in. And from a doctor's standpoint, though, it's scary because if you don't put that person on a statin and something happens, you are so out far outside the guidelines and so liable, and you could have potentially you know not helped the patient you could have helped. So it's a it's a scary place for doctors to be with familial hypercholesterolemia, trying to determine if someone is in the safe zone or not. Mm. And again, this is where, as you mentioned earlier, you can get a second opinion from someone like yourself just to put your mind at rest and have a good workup 
to kind yeah. of know where where you're at. Right. And and I guess the other thing is um if it's all about, you know, with familial hypercholesterolemia, if it is truly all about lowering that LDL number, there are lots of other ways to do it besides just statins. You know, there are herbs and supplements and some people prefer to go that route. Um, and they're even sort of, as Dave Feldman shows, there's plenty of, you know, acute dietary interventions you can do. But for the long term, it's not always just about statins. So the second opinion, even if you need to lower your LDL, could be, are there other ways to lower this LDL besides statins? Mm-hmm. So I guess that gets us onto your, some of your favorite preventative treatment methods. So the low-carb, high-fat diet is, is one. Um, and you've touched on some other ones too when you were doing your workup on a patient to see how heart healthy they are. Um, would you mind just sharing some other way, other things that you would advise people to so that they have a, a good cardiovascular system? Yeah. And, and, and like I mentioned in the workup, the, the first thing has nothing to do with labs. It all has to do with how you live your life. So we've touched on nutrition. Um, a second thing though, which is, which is really coming up into popularity now is this concept of time restricted eating or intermittent fasting. And that's from a cardiovascular standpoint, but also from a cancer standpoint, from an Alzheimer's standpoint, dementia standpoint and longevity standpoint. That's, that's a really interesting, um, area of research that I just want to dive into and learn more and more about because the more I read about it, the more it makes sense and the more important it seems to be. So that's something I also like to, to work in with patients. Now, there are sort of two patient populations that this really works well for. And one is the people who are trying to lose weight or control their diabetes. It's clear that time restricted eating and intermittent fasting benefits them. But the other one is people who don't have those issues, but just want to, be preventative and and improve their health and improve their longevity and that's that's where I think a lot of the the money is so to speak or the um, where a lot of the excitement's going to be in using this as as a tool so I'm I'm definitely using that quite a bit and playing with that with with myself and with my patients um, physical activity is another big one and if I have one complaint about the keto community it's that they sort of devalue physical activity and you know from a weight loss standpoint. No question, physical activity is not where it's at. Nutrition is the majority of weight loss. But from a health perspective, physical activity is still so important. Doesn't mean you have to run marathons. Doesn't mean you have to do triathlons. But you have to move your body regularly and make it a point of who you are. And unfortunately, our society is not well set up for that, just like it's not set up for a low-carb way of eating. So you sort of have to go out of your way and make it a priority to move your body regularly. Now, ideally, we'd all be getting some high-intensity interval training, some resistance training, and some moderate cardio exercise, You know, a combination of that. But even if you can't get that, just moving your body, walking as much as you can, taking the stairs, simple things like that make a difference in your health. Um, getting regular sleep makes a huge difference, both how it controls your hormones, but also how you then make decisions in your life. Uh, I think we all know when we're chronically underslept, that's the day that we're probably not going to eat as well, where we're not going to move our bodies as well, where we're not going to manage our stress as well. So it's a, it's a, again, a snowball effect from, from something as simple as getting sleep. And again, our society does not necessarily value sleep. So that's an important point. Um, so the lifestyle is is crucial, and that's what I would emphasize over and over and over again. And the rest of the stuff we can measure, right? We can measure what your glucose is. We can measure what your insulin is. We can measure your waist circumference. We can measure your blood pressure. We can measure those and talk about specific interventions to address those. The things you can't always measure, though, that are so important is how are you managing your stress? How are you sleeping? How are you moving your body? 
how are you eating? So that's what I always fall back on is the keys. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's so refreshing to hear. I think for anyone to think it doesn't have to get fancy to stay healthy, just sleep well, move regularly, you know, eat, eat well, but, um, and, and the stress component. And you actually, you just reminded me of something else where, I don't know if you've ever read that book by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Outliers. Outliers, yeah. Yeah, great and book. His, and his opening chapter there was, I think, the Rosetta study, was it? I think I'm saying it right, where it was the two Italian families and they had the one group of men who were up in the mountain and the one group who were down in the town level. Do you, I don't know if do you remember yeah, that story? Yeah, it, it's ringing a bell, yeah. It's ringing yeah, but, a bell. I don't remember the specifics, but yeah, I think. But, but Yeah, but basically the, the, the short part of that story was just to say that so you got these two group of men. They're in two. They've, they're, they live close to each other in two different locations, though. But the one group don't get heart attacks, but the other group do. And the, yeah. and the doctors at the time were thinking, I, we don't know what the difference is. And after studying everything that they could, they found it was because the men up in the mountain still had that Italian social life, where it was the mamas and the papas, and you know they they were very social. Whereas the men down in the town were isolated and lonely, and yeah. that was the biggest compounding factor for why the men in the town had heart attacks and if so it was amazing just saying that as you mentioned that that was a stress factor that loneliness and that was sure. a major cardiovascular risk factor that needed to be addressed yeah well, well so many people like to talk about the blue zones and there was you know a good book that um documenting these so-called blue zones where people tend to live the areas where people tend to live the longest and have the longest health span um and a lot of people have sort of turn that into a diet thing, a diet only. Like, look, this is the diet they eat. So everybody should be eating this diet. But it's so much more than that because it is their entire lifestyle. And a big part of that is they have very strong community ties. They have strong family units and community units. So they're not lonely. They all have purposes. They, they get up and they have something to do with their day every day. When they're moving their bodies every day, they live in a, in a community where they walk to things and they have active hobbies. And, and, and so it, just like with that Rosetta study you're talking about, there's, there's so much more than just how you eat. Um, now that's clearly very important, but the way you live your life, your connections with others and the way you manage your entire lifestyle all plays into our health. There's no question about it. Well, we're coming up on time now and I think we've covered a lot of area, but a lot of awesome areas because there's so many actionable things that have come out of that. And I also felt you've, you've managed to answer so many common questions that would come up in the community that I've seen. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, Brett, how can anyone follow you or keep in touch with you now? Um, are there any social links or website links you'd like to share for people? Yeah, well, th thanks for asking, Gary. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. Um, yeah, to find find more about me, uh, lowcarbcardiologist.com is my website. And there are links to everything in there. There's links to my podcast. Um, there's links to my book. And then there's links to my social media. I'm, I tend to be more active on Twitter than any other social media outlet. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best place to start. And I try to put as much information out there as I can in different varieties, whether it's the podcast or whether it's my videos on my YouTube channel um, or the blogs just to try and get things out there in ways that resonate with people so they can they can learn this and they can see that there's a path to health out there that may be a little bit different than than what their doctor is telling them that can really help them out. Yeah, fantastic. And I'll put all those links in the show notes on your episode page for anyone listening. Again, thank you so much for coming on to today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Gary. Yeah.